Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, a decision regarding whether or not two Atlanta police officers, Garrett Roth and Devin Brosnan, will be charged in the shooting death of Rayshard Brooks in the summer of 2020. Brosnan and Roth committed no crimes. Both acted as reasonable officers would under the facts and circumstances of the events of that night. 27-year-old Brooks was shot and killed by APD officer Garrett Roth following an altercation as the officer was attempting to arrest Brooks, who was running away and with one of the officer's taser in hand. APD was initially called to the Southwest Wendy's location because Rayshard Brooks had fallen asleep in the drive-thru. The Atlanta Wendy's, where all this took place, where Roth shot Brooks, was lit on fire by protesters, you may recall. Now, Pete Scandalakis is the executive director of the Prosecuting Attorneys Council of Georgia. He was the special prosecutor brought in for this case regarding officers Roth and Brosnan. And again, we'll have live coverage of the announcement, as well as reaction and analysis with WABE legal analyst Paige Pate. In other news, as I told you yesterday, Georgia voters can now request an absentee ballot for this fall's midterm elections. But as we hear from Sam Greenglass, all voters are eligible to vote absentee. No reason needed. Still, a lot has changed due to sweeping provisions in the state's most recent legislation. Georgia voters have until October 28th to request an absentee ballot. Unlike previous years, the application can't be completed entirely online. Voters can go to the Secretary of State's website, then print, sign, and upload the completed form. A driver's license number or other ID is also required. The changes are the result of Georgia's new election law passed by Republicans last year. Applications can also be submitted by mail, fax, or in-person drop-off at a local elections office. Election offices will also have blank applications available and can mail them upon request. Election officials can't send absentee ballots to voters until the second week of October. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham has until tomorrow to let a federal judge know exactly which questions he wants squashed in his subpoena to appear before the Fulton County Special Grand Jury. Of course, the Special Grand Jury is looking into efforts to overturn the 2020 election results here in Georgia. A federal appeals court delayed an order for Graham to testify last week, saying the court needs to first hear arguments about what the senator can and can't be asked. Prosecutors want to question Graham about calls he made to Georgia's Secretary of State and his staff. You're listening to Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at CF greateratlanta.org.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. It's a term that defines the equity gap as it relates to who has quality access, not only to the Internet, but to resources and opportunities that exist due to, quite frankly, being connected. That term is called the digital divide. Here in Georgia, more than a million residents lack access to what's called reliable high-speed Internet And that excludes them from opportunities like participating in the digital economy. Now, this reality can have lasting effects across generations, especially lower-income communities and people of color. Michelle Gathers is the Chief Diversity Officer for Visa, and she joins me now to talk about all this, including some solutions that might help. Michelle, welcome. Thank you very much, Rose. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's begin here. How do you define this, this digital divide? Yeah, so I define it in multiple ways, but it is the difference between someone being able to participate in this new knowledge and digital economy and those who are excluded Mm -hmm. from being able to fully participate because of lack of access and equipment. So it's multifaceted and to your point, has generational implications. And I often say that it is the new potential root cause of poverty. Let me ask you this, because, and I'm, I'm dating myself, I remember when all this started, and I remember getting that, you've got mail, and that weird sound, and your mother's like, your father's like, you hogging up the phone line. <laughs> so, and I remember it was a big deal to have yeah. internet, then, you know, and all that, but for some communities, you know, they st- 2022, people still maybe what, everyone doesn't have access to the internet? Why do you think that, yeah. percep- that perception still exists? Yeah. You know, um, a lot of it is where <clears throat> the wire is laid, where the access is afforded. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you think about it, 70% of the people in Georgia who do not have access to reliable high-speed Internet actually live in rural mm-hmm. Georgia. And, and no, you're but, right. No, I, what I was going to say was that we know about the infrastructure challenges for rural communities. That in itself is the beginning. That's exactly right. So without that infrastructure, you actually can't even get access. Mm-hmm. And sometimes even in our government-sponsored public housing developments, it's not the same internet that we might receive at home as we think about the fact that it needs to be high speed, Mm -hmm. it needs to be accessible by multiple members of the family. Uh, You know, sometimes you have to put boosters in your house Mm -hmm. to boost the effectiveness of your high speed. So there are a lot of variables that must be considered as we think about access. You mentioned that lack of access, you pinpoint this to also contributing factor as it relates to poverty. And someone listening may say, well, take that a little bit further for us, Michelle Gathers. What do you mean by that? How do you support that claim? Yeah. As we think about its potential implication to generational poverty, let us remember that COVID-19 taught us something about getting a basic education. Mm -hmm. It taught us about ability to apply for a job 
with higher wages. It taught us about this idea of applying and successfully completing the assessment. You cannot do that on your cell phone. Mm -hmm. And often we believe that we're connected because of our cell phone, but some of the capabilities that we really need are far more than what a basic cell phone can do. You know, Michelle, I remember when we were doing a lot of this coverage, obviously, with how the pandemic was was affecting so many different quality of life sectors. And I received an email from a student at one of the local universities here who was trying to take classes simply by using his cell phone because he was didn't have access to a laptop, didn't have access to the computer lab. And. You know, we, we were able to connect that student with the, with the organization that was helping. And I know universities stepped in and also provided that for their students. But think about that, trying to yes. attend courses yes. just through your, through your phone. Right. And, and we, we have to be fully transparent that the digital divide is about high-speed Internet and the right equipment and the right skills. So it's really a trifecta that we've got to be um, supporting. So it's one thing to have the hardware. It's another thing to have the connection. And then it is another to have the skills. So is it just something simple? Someone saying, okay, so let's just get the high speed in, in, in the rural communities. Let's get everyone free Wi-Fi around the city of Atlanta. That's not just the simple solution, right? It's not, it's not. And so that's why a organization like Visa is saying, we're gonna address the digital divide. Yes, by equipment, but also by working with partners to make sure people can use the equipment and then making sure we give some baseline skills. All right, well, let's get into it. Let's talk about then what you all are offering in terms of, well, let's first start with the access and the equipment. What are you all doing over there at Visa? Right. You know, so as we think about the micro macro implications, we know that 18 million Americans do not have access to high speed Internet in their homes. Right. And 46 percent of them, 46 percent of Americans don't have a computer. So when we look at those two statistics, we say, what is it that a corporation like Visa can do? Well, our reality is we have the equipment. And we have a network. So okay. we joined together with an organization, IT technology, no, um, human IT. And what we did is we said, we need equipment that's refurbished, some of it new. We also need to make sure there's training that goes along with it and someone to quote unquote, fix the technology should it break. So it's really very multifaceted and we kicked it off here in Atlanta on June 28th, Mm -hmm. where we plan on giving a thousand pieces of equipment and access and training to households and small businesses in Atlanta. And here come the emails, Rose. (laughs) Here come the emails, Michelle. Rose, I need to get in on this. Okay, so how did you all, how you all able to determine the the criteria for those residents and small businesses that will be eligible? And a thousand sounds great. Probably not enough, but it's a start. So how did you it's all? A, that's exactly right. Yeah. And so for us, it is about partnering with known and reliable and trusted 
nonprofits. So it is, we work with human IT, which then goes out to community-based organizations, working with families, individuals, and small businesses, and putting the all call out to say, this opportunity will be available. So the key, the linchpin in this is human IT, which is a nonprofit that is national and works with our local nonprofits here. Now you said you put the word out. How'd you put the word out? Because I didn't see so it until I got a press release. Oh, we're sorry <laughs> about that. What we did is we asked Human IT to get in touch with organizations ranging from Boys and Girls Club, ranging from um, father, you know, um, men working in fatherhood programs, mm-hmm. working with organizations of single parents, working with startups and collabs. And they then went and said, we have this opportunity, Uh, please come and apply. And on that first day, we had over um, 100 people come to the place where we were giving them out and had the opportunity to give each person the equipment and the training. And there was much gratitude on our part as well as on the recipient's part. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Michelle Gether. She's a chief diversity officer of Visa, and we're talking about ways to close the digital divide here. So you said you're able to help a thousand, a hundred people, folks showed up the first time. I mean, you still have some room left for folks. We sure do. All we right. sure do. Because here come the so, emails. <laughs> yeah, you know, and when you think about it, fifteen percent of the households in Atlanta do not have access to a computer. You know, we talked about access to, you know, broad, high-speed internet, but now we got to get the equipment in their hands because as we both know from personal experience and lived experience through others, the cell phone is not enough. No. Okay. So you're you're equipping households and some small businesses with, yes. I'm assuming, a laptop or some type of tablet. Yes. And yes. then are you also helping them with access to just even getting online as well? Yes. And is it high speed? It has to be high speed okay. because we both know that broadband is not enough. Well, let me ask you this. What if a household is, is but in this, is high speed, are you, are you necessarily talking about fiber? Because in some communities you can get fiber right. and some communities you just got to get a, the regular old, I'm not going to mention right. communities because I don't want to get an email from somebody saying, why are you talking about my neighborhood? So, But yeah. it is high it speed. It may not be fiber, but it's high speed. Right. And what we have to do is we have to deal with the infrastructure that we are given in this equation. So it's not that we're going and laying fiber. We're not doing that. Mm -hmm. We're trying to work with where people are and where homes are because we have to start somewhere. Because if we wait for this moment of perfection, uh, time will pass us by. What's been the response so far in terms of just with folks being able to get connected and then once they're connected and they have the the equipment, then you all are going to take it further because you're not going to stop there, right? Exactly. So um, we're not going to stop there because uh, all machines have the tendency to break. So we also are going to stay with families for a year and say, if something happens to that equipment, we are your true partners in closing the digital divide. So I think that's also an important piece. Another piece is to continue to look for equitable access as we think about financial also Mm -hmm. equity. So it goes further than just having a computer. How do we then 
uh, provide financial education and financial inclusion so that people can elevate their economic mobility. So with this financial literacy training, is will that be programs that they can access right there on the equipment that you've given that's them? Ex- they can enroll in or something? That's exactly right. We actually have um, open source compute, excuse me, financial literacy that anyone can access on the World Wide Web. And so we're making that available and giving them, you know, the, the opportunity to practice, the opportunity to go further. Uh, so we really do try to think about this holistically and really have a wraparound approach to closing the d- digital divide. And Michelle, I have a question here. Actually, I won't name the nonprofit, but I have a question here from a nonprofit that's asking, will you be, will you all connect with nonprofits that primarily work with low-income communities and households? That's really our focus, to be perfectly honest with you. We don't want to give computers to those who already have. Mm -hmm. We want to give computers to those who have a need and a demonstrated need already doing the, already engaged Mm -hmm. in trying to close this gap. And we want to be a partner in fulfilling it. And I just want folks to know also you all will, will offer for 12 months free remote tech support. And I tell you, yeah. I take that because yeah. when you're right. trying to, uh, I'm just speaking from experience. This is just Rose Scott, not, you know, when you're trying to get tech support and you got an issue at home <laughs> and I'm trying to watch the season finale of P-Valley <laughs> and all that, I'm like, what's going on? <laughs> uh, tech support. I love my yeah. tech support, though, just saying. But that that's thats also, that is great. You all are going to offer 12 months of free tech support. That's exactly right, because that's when the rubber meets the road. It's in your time of need. It's when you really are most vulnerable is when it's not working and yeah. you were trying to figure out how to finish this job application, right? Absolutely. So that's when we want to be there. Michelle, we said earlier, a thousand individuals, including in small businesses and households, it's a start. You know, right. where do you all hope this program goes in the future? Will you be able to continue it, you think? I'm going to say we have a high level of confidence that not only will we be able to continue, but we believe that there are other partners in the community who are looking for an opportunity to join forces. So it is not thesis desire to be the only. Mm-hmm. What we want to do is open the door. And we want to keep the door open so that others can join us and or start a program of their own. Mm -hmm. Uh, So this is really about opening a door so that Atlanta closes the digital divide. You know, when we start this conversation and you talked about technology and the connection as it relates to poverty and I ask you to take that further. And I have a question from a listener who says that I agree with your guests. Folks don't really understand the connection between how technology can be from can take someone from low income to middle income and even higher just by simply being connected. Absolutely. A truthful, a truth filled statement that if we do not address this, we will see growing poverty because of exclusion and lack of access. 
We know that Secretary Vilsack has said that the USDA will provide, that they are trying to be part of providing resources to states. I know here in Georgia, Governor Kemp has allocated money toward you know, the rural rural communities and, and, and infrastructure as it relates to being connected. Because again, I think there's this perception that if you're in an urban community, it's not, it's connection is not that big of a deal, but it still is. It is. It is. We all, you know, remember when there's a sliding scale to the kind of service you can buy mm-hmm. when you are, when you can afford something, we want to optimize people's knowledge and connection and access. What is the optimal environment if you have three children in the household plus somebody working from home? Mm-hmm. You really have to have the higher end of high-speed internet connectivity. Let me ask you this. Are you all offering this in other cities as well? I know Atlanta. Is is Atlanta the test yes. market here? or um, We launched in two cities, and the first city we launched in was Pueblo, Colorado, and Atlanta was the second. And we're going to go to Canada next. We're going to be uh, in a major city in uh, Canada, mm-hmm. uh, later this year. So it's our desire to scale across North America uh, during 2023. And finally, Michelle, if folks listening want to learn more about how they can can possibly either enroll or be involved with your nonprofit that helps low-income communities or populations or households and you want to be part of this program, how can they, what's the best way to reach you all? Yeah, I'm going to ask them to go to humani-t.org. Uh, Okay. And they will give you insight into how to be involved. And we'll put a link on our website as well. Michelle Gathers is Chief Diversity Officer for Visa, and we've been discussing the digital divide. Michelle, thank you so much for what you all are doing to help so many households. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Be well. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. A decision by a special prosecutor regarding two Atlanta police officers and the 2020 shooting death of Rayshard Brooks was announced today. There will be no charges filed against police officers Garrett Roth and Devin Brosnan. Now, due to time constraints, we're going to bring you segments of today's press conference held by Special Prosecutor Pete Skandalakis. He was brought in for the case by Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr. You'll hear from Danny Porter also former district attorney for Gwinnett County. He was brought in to assist in reviewing files and all video footage from the night of June 12, 2020. We begin with Danny Porter. So the, the legal principle that we're dealing with here is that when an officer with probable cause seeks to arrest an individual, that person is not, flee, is not free to flee or resist the arrest. Although he retains the right not to speak with the officer, it is unlawful for a suspect to flee a, pol- a pursuing police officer in an attempt to escape arrest. So the two charges that the officers have probable cause to arrest at this point are DUI and uh, escape, they could charge misdemeanor escape, they could charge resisting arrest. Um, at this point, those are the two basic charges, but it's important to note they have probable cause to arrest him once they once they make the move here is where we're going to go into the resistance assault and flight in a previous statement it was stated that 
Uh, Atlanta police policy requires that you notify an individual that they are under arrest prior to placing them under arrest. That's not correct. The, the Atlanta police policy does not require that. And as a result, we, we found that Officers Rolfs, Officer Rolfs' attempt to arrest him was clearly within the law. This is a, this is a customer in, a, in the drive-through who filmed on a, on a telephone, on a, a cell phone, the, the fighting or the fight. And you can see that from this distance, um, from about this point on, I don't think there's any other way to describe it, but Brooks proceeds to beat the crap out of the two officers. Um, but again, as, as I said, video never lies, but until you break these circumstances down, it's really hard to tell what's going on in that video. And that's how long it takes for this to explode into violence that Brooks fights his way out and runs down to where the red car is, and that's where Rolf fires the fatal shots. So what we did is we broke down, or had the videos analyzed and broken down into still photographs. This is a frame-by-frame -frame analysis. What they did was they stabilized each of the videos and synchronized them. Then they added in the video to the, to the timeline, and we were able to determine second, well, by a hundredths of a second, at each step of the video, depending on the, the frame rate of the video. So the first photograph that we show is, this is the first time Rolf makes physical contact with him. You can see he doesn't jerk him around, he doesn't try and slam him to the ground, he more or less is touching his hand to maintain contact of it and starts to put the handcuffs on him. Mr. Brooks at that point lunges forward with his left hand and you can see in the circled area that he is, he is actually escaping the handcuff. The, hand, the, the handcuff's not closed and he manages to pull his hands out of it. Brosnan's hands are on the right side of the picture and he is trying to hold Brooks' right arm. Officer Brosnan at that point when they go to the ground, he, he tries to do what's called a drive stun uh, with his taser. That, a drive stun is where you use the probes on the taser, you pull the trigger and it, it, it's a, what's called a pain compliance device. In other words, it, it inflicts pain so that the person will stop doing what they're doing and in this case that's fighting the officers. Rolf is the one with his back turned to the camera and, um, and Brosnan is the one on his knees there holding it. The next slide shows that Brooks sits up despite having Rolf on his back and grabs the taser before he, the drive stun can be completed. And he grabs Brosnan's taser and they struggle over the, over the possession of the taser. At this point, Brooks lifts Rolf off his back, off, lifts him off his back and throws him out into the parking lot and um, gets him off of him, which allows him then to rise, start to rise to his feet. Rolf is thrown to the ground and he is in control of Brosnan just outside of, or on the other side of them. He has got Brosnan down in a, a down on his back, basically, and is holding him with his left hand. They are still fighting over the taser. Brosnan tries to maintain control of the taser. It's still in the left hand of, of Mr. Brooks. I can't leave the podium, but you can see it in the, the, the yellow is the, is the taser. 
and it's in Brooks's left hand. Brooks picks up Officer Rolfe a second time and throws him, throws him off and throws him forward onto the ground. So Rolfe, he, he concentrates on Brosnan and he gets Brosnan's taser away from him while he leans over, and, over him and holds him to the ground. This is a wider shot of that. Rolf is still trying to control Mr. Brooks's head and shoulders, but he has the taser. He then strikes Officer Rolf with his right arm and hits him in the neck and hits him beside the ear. Um, at that point, he, has, he still has the taser in his left hand and he begins to transfer it to his right hand in this frame. Here you can see it, that the taser has been transferred to his right hand and at that point he starts to use it. Um, it's pointed at Officer Rolf. He, he, at the same time he's pushing Brosnan back off his feet onto the ground. He then tries to, uh, Rolf at that point uses his own taser he tries to deploy the taser against Brooks, uh, or excuse me, um, Mr. Brooks using the taser. He fires the taser, which you can see the flash on the taser on the left. Um, that, in that case, the he is firing the taser at Officer Rolf, or at least the probes show it's headed in their direction. And you can see that we can tell the taser is being discharged because of three things. There's a puff of smoke. There's a spark, but there's also a flashlight on it that comes on every time you pull the trigger. We also know that it was just that it was deployed at this point because the taser has an internal device that tells us the exact time that every time it's activated. So we can correlate the time on the timestamp of the video to the time on the on the taser, and we know this was Brosnan's taser, but he was firing it at Rolf. The video tells us that. He turns and, and, and then tar starts to try and do a drive stun on Officer Brosnan. At this point, um, I don't, he's not successful. Brosnan manages to raise his left arm and ward off the taser, but he has Brosnan who's on his knees and he's trying to do a drive stun on him. A second pop goes off and that is Mr. Brooks using Brosnan's taser to fire the probes at Officer Brosnan. Brosnan has his arm up, as you can see. Wait a minute, I'm one ahead. But you can see, at this point, a second pops heard, and Rolf tries to deploy his taser against Brooks. Those, those probes miss and don't strike. In the meantime, Brooks has turned down over Brosnan and is, try, is still trying to hit him with the taser. At that point, Brooks fires at Officer Brosnan. Brosnan was struck in the hand by the probes from the taser. He had some effect from the, from the taser. He's also by this time had a concussion because his head was bounced off the pavement. Brooke, uh, Rolf is still trying to get a shot on the right-hand side of the picture with his taser, which he then set, deploys as the second deployment. We know in this case that one of the taser, well, they hit Mr. Brooks. One of them 
was lodged in his, in, on the back on his right side where you see that little puff in his shirt. The other, well, the other lodged in the shirt, so therefore it didn't connect, didn't have an electronic connection. So when, when Rolf pressed the trigger, he didn't get the effect. The, ter the, the taser did not immobilize Mr. Brooks. But Brooks at that point turns and starts to run around the cars. Brooks is hooked to him by the taser probe that's in his back, and he is running, chasing, chasing slash following Brooks, attached to him by the taser lead. At this point, the officers have developed additional probable cause to arrest Mr. Brooks. The charges that we believe that would be appropriate had this stopped at this point, had, had, had everything stopped, they could have arrested Mr. Brooks for felony obstruction of a law enforcement officer, which is, of course, when you obstruct or resist an officer with violence. Removal of a weapon from a public official, which is the taking of the taser. Aggravated assault on a police officer, which is the use of the taser, both against Rolf for firing it and on, on uh, Brosnan for actually hitting him and shocking him. And then possession of a firearm during the commission of a crime, which would be the possession of the taser. So in addition to the initial probable cause, the officers now have additional probable cause to arrest Mr. Brooks. This is the four. We've looked at all of the uses of force, including this combat that we've shown you, but the primary uh, place of our investigation is the use of deadly force. And what we've done here is there's a Wendy's video camera that captures the chase from one end of the, of the Wendy's parking lot all the way to the end where the, where the actual shooting takes place. To give you an idea of the time frame, it takes 17 seconds to play this video, which means it took 17 seconds for that chase to occur and for the things that we, we saw in the video. When you watch it the first time, which I'm going to let you do now, well, when we watch it the first time, it's very hard to pick out details until you break it down frame by frame, and that's, we've done that. We've broken this, it down into three chases. So the first one, this is the, this is the Wendy's video. The only thing that's been done to it, it's been stabilized. Um, it, is, it, it has not been sped up or slowed down, although the GBI report did contain a slow motion version of it, but the experts gave us the experts gave us this. They, had more, they called it cleaning up, but it's only been stabilized and brightened a little bit. There's no changes to it. All right, the next video is the first. I asked that they break this chase, uh, our technical folks break this chase down into three parts because I think those are the most critical portions of it. You can see how fast it went and how fast decisions had to be made and, and choices had to be made. This is the first third of the, of the chase. You can see them come out from behind. You can see them come out from behind Brooks's car. That's him fleeing from the fight. And he starts to run. In this picture, if you look closely, and you might not be able to in this medium, but if you look closely, the taser wire is visible in the, in the space between them. So he's. Rolf is still trying to taser, is still trying to taser Brooks, and you can tell they're very close because they're only one part, the width of one parking space apart as they run. Um, 
you can, if you look closely, you can see that Brooks has the taser in his right hand. Okay? During this time, multiple witnesses confirmed that they saw Rolf trying to tase Brooks, but with no effect. And the reason there was no effect is simply because both probes did not land. All right, this is the second part of the chase that I asked that we break out to show you. you can, this is part one. Now it goes on. At that point where you see the flash of the taser, and when Brooks turns back over his right shoulder, then, and he activates the taser, that's the flash. Rolf, at this point, you can see he moved his taser to his left hand, and he is moving towards his firearm, which is on his right side. This is at least one of the times that Brooks activated the taser between here and, and there. Okay. The next slide are the breakdowns. Here you see in the circled area, Rolf is running with his taser in his right hand, and Brooks is running with, his, with Brosnan's taser in his right hand. You can't see, but they're attached by a probe, by a wire from Rolf's taser. Here you see the actual still photograph of, of Brooks activating the taser over his right shoulder in the direction of Rolf, you can see Rolf has either dropped or has moved the taser to his left hand and is starting to move towards his firearm. There's the clear cut shot of the taser going off. Here Rolf actually runs into the red car, but he, he moves to the red car. That is a second taser dis dis uh, discharge right there. Remember, both of the probes are gone. They, they, he shot both of the probes. And you can see Rolf is drawing his weapon at that point. He ends up hitting the fender of the car, and he, he hits it right around here. So he, he runs into the car, but you can see his right arm is extended. The experts told us this was the first shot that you can tell by the change in luminescence of the, of the video that the, that the weapon discharged right here, and that's the first shot. You can see that Brooks is partially turned towards the officer on his right side. He still has the, the taser on his right side, and he continues to run. From the video evidence, th this is directly from the report of the experts. From the video and audio evidence, there were approximately 1.1 seconds between the time Brooks fired the taser and Officer Rolf and the time Officer Rolf returned the fire with his gun. During that second, Rolf drew his weapon, oriented the weapon in Brooks's direction, and pressed the trigger. Georgia law says that when a suspect threatens an officer with deadly force and then turns before the officer can respond with the gunfire, the result can be a gunshot wound in the, in the back. In this case, however, Brooks fired the taser at Officer Rolf and continued to aim the taser at him while running away, which turned his body to the right. And at that point, at that point, when Mr. Brooks pulled the trigger after deploying the taser at Officer Rolf, Brooks was able to twist his upper body 
to his right, reach back with his right arm, and deploy the taser. That meant that Brooks's buttocks were directly towards Officer Rolfe, and, it, and the autopsy showed that one of the bullets entered his buttocks. And, and this was, and I think Mr. Morgan spoke, this was in Georgia law. This is from the expert report. Right. I'm sorry. I, uh, this was from the expert report. And his back was partially exposed, which explains why the two wounds were on the back part of his body. In this case, Officer Rolfe's first shot was fired while Brooks was still aiming the taser at him. All three shots were fired in approximately 0.56 seconds. Now, this is Georgia law on when an officer may use deadly force. And what we did here is we gave you the code section, and then under each code section, we put in bullet points of what we believed were the appropriate facts as to each section of the code section. So the, 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 uh, the code section begins, peace officers may use deadly force, but it gives three instances. The first is when, the, when the, reasonably, uh, the officer reasonably believes that the suspect possesses a deadly weapon or any object, device, or person which, when used offensively, in, any, in other words, it can be a, dead, a everyday object, but it can be used to inflict serious injury or death. That can be considered a deadly weapon. Under case law in Georgia, which is part of our review, a taser can be considered a deadly weapon uh, for these purposes. So you see that, number one, they were both officers. So uh, that is important. This is not something that citizens can do. <coughs> Excuse me. Brooks had taken Brosnan's taser and had deployed it while he was still in the fight, which gave Rolf a, a reasonable belief that he was armed with a deadly weapon. Uh, Brosnan described the, the pain and, and of being tased and that Brooks had pointed and deployed the taser at Rolf multiple times during the time he was running away. An officer can also use deadly force when he reasonably believes the suspect poses an immediate threat of physical violence to the officer or others. Um, with the factors that we, we looked at here is that Brooks had already overpowered two officers and violently brought both of them to the ground. Um, he, he had overpowered them. That's the only word for it. He took a weapon from Brosnan. He struck Rolf on the right side of the head and neck. He deployed the taser against both officers, and he, report, he, he ignored repeated commands to drop the taser and to stop. So I think the officers would have had a reasonable belief that he, could, that he was an immediate threat of physical violence. And then the third section is when there's probable cause to believe that the suspect has committed a crime, We've already got, or that uh, the crime has to involve the infliction or threatened infliction of serious bodily harm. And you can see that we've placed the charges here again, which these, which Brooks could have faced had, any, had it stopped at any point short of this. So it's our finding, or it's my finding in this case, that Officer Rolfe acted in accordance with Georgia law, that he acted in accordance with. Atlanta police policy on the use of deadly force. He acted in accordance with the controlling case of Tennessee versus Garner and Graham versus Connor. And based on the facts and circumstances confronting Officer Rolfe and Officer Brosnan in this case, it's my conclusion that the use of deadly force was objectively reasonable and that they did not act with criminal intent. And now at this time I'll go into the uh, applicable law. and. One of the premier cases, one of the most important cases, is from the 11th Circuit, and it says, 
And this is where sometimes the public gets confused and we get into the what, uh, what should have happened, what could have happened, what should have the officers done, but the 11th Circuit has made it very clear. It says, we are not to view the matter as judges from the comfort and safety of our chambers, fearful of nothing more threatening than the occasional paper cut. We must see the situation through the eyes of the officer on the scene who is hampered by incomplete information and forced to make a split-second decision between action and inaction in circumstances where inaction could prove fatal. And in this case, you must remember that here we have a peaceful encounter that all of a sudden becomes a violent encounter. And not only does it become a violent encounter, it is quickly changing and it is quickly dynamic. When uh, Brooks takes the taser, he now becomes uh, basically a person with an offensive position. He can incapacitate the officers. A taser in the hands of a person who is not trained can also be deadly. He can also, as I pointed out, incapacitate the officers, take their weapons, but now he's definitely become uh, a person who is the aggressor. And one of the things that uh, we have to be mindful of, we do not look at this with 2020 hindsight. We look at it with what information the officers had in a dynamic situation that is quickly evolving and is causing them to react. The reasonable test, and Mr. Porter's gone over this, the reasonableness of a particular use of force must be judged from the perspective of a reasonable officer on the scene rather than with 20-20 vision of hindsight. The question is whether the officer's actions are objectively reasonable in light of the facts and circumstances confronting them without regard to the underlying intent or motivation. And here you have what you're going to hear a lot is objectively reasonable. Were the officer's actions objectively reasonable? And I think you can also conclude that um, the arrest warrants on Brosnan, uh, where Brosnan is basically out of it once he has been tased, has been knocked with a concussion, is basically out of it. So we're really looking at the actions, not of Brosnan, but of Rolfe. And again, given the quickly changing circumstances, was it objectively reasonable that he used deadly force? And we conclude it was. Whether, and I, let me go back. Uh, the case is Graham versus Connor, which was decided in 1989 and continues to be cited today. So in Tennessee versus Garner, what you're looking at, the probable cause to believe that the suspect poses a threat of serious physical harm. We know that because uh, he has committed physical harm on the officers, either to officers or others. It is not constitutionally unreasonable to prevent escape by using deadly force. And again, quoting Graham, and we've gone over this, you look at the totality of the circumstances. What did the officer know at that time, at that moment, at that split second? We here in this room have plenty of time to decide what we're going to do next. We don't have plenty of time to decide what we're going to do if one of us decides to go after the other. We simply have to react to what is happening. So from the perspective of a reasonable officer on the scene, at the moment force was used without 20-20 hindsight, and this is, a, this is key, in circumstances that are tense, uncertain, and rapidly evolving. 
deadly force, and Mr. Porter's already gone over this, so there's no need for, for me to go over it again. He's broken it down. State versus Copeland, Mr. Uh, Porter touched on this. A taser can be considered a deadly weapon in certain circumstances, and whether the use of a taser constitutes a use of force that is intended or likely to cause death is a case-by-case -case determination that must account for how the device is used, how many times it's used, what duration, and under what circumstances. Again, even common objects can be, can be considered as deadly weapons. And Mr. Porter touched on this, and I'll just reiterate, a pronouncement of arrest is not required to complete a lawful arrest, as both the United States Supreme Court and the Georgia courts have expe expressly rejected. I point out that on the tasers, you see item two, can cause death or serious bodily injury. So even the manufacturer of a taser understands that it can be used as a deadly weapon. Concluding remarks. The autopsy of Mr. Brooks um, revealed that he died, as you all know, he, was, uh, he had two gunshot wounds, one to the buttocks, one to the middle of the back. Uh, Mr. Porter has explained, because I know there was some uh, conversation earlier or media reports earlier about Mr. Brooks being shot in the back. The frame-by-frame uh, -frame analysis explains how that happens and how quickly that can happen. Crime lab results, Mr. Brooks's alcohol was a .102. His toxology report showed it was positive for cocaine and cocathylene, which is uh, cocaine mixed with alcohol. So it shows that he has both those in his systems. Um, he also had uterine in his system. Also in the car, uh, the GBI conducted a search. They found pills. The pills were positive for methamphetamine and uterine. Uterine is better known under the street name of ecstasy. I also point out that uh, Udalin is also found in, uh, in the toxicology report in Mr. Brooks's blood. In conclusion, Officer Brosnan and Rolf were acting within the scope of their duties and authority when placing Rashard Brooks under arrest for driving under the influence of alcohol. Officers had no way of knowing or anticipating that within seconds of this encounter, both would be attacked by Brooks and that Brooks would overpower them, take the taser from one of them, fire the stolen taser at both of them, and then attempt to escape while continuing to fire the taser at the pursuing officer. To conclude, Brosnan and Rolf committed no crimes. Both acted as reasonable officers would under the facts and circumstances of the events of that night. Of that night. Both acted in accordance with well-established law and were justified in the use of force regarding the situation. We do wish to extend our sympathies and condolences. And now we're going to bring in WABE legal analyst Paige Pate for just a few moments. But we will turn this over to WABE's Jim Burris and all things considered a little bit later. But Paige, I think we've heard so much here. First of all, your reaction to just how long this press conference was. Well, Rose, there was a lot of explaining to do, a lot of justification given for the ultimate decision not to charge these officers uh, in this case. And I think they focused a lot on the wrong issues. They focused on whether there was probable cause to arrest Mr. Brooks for DUI. That's not an issue. Whether there was probable cause to arrest him for trying to escape from the DUI arrest also not an issue. The only issue was, did the officers have a reasonable fear for their lives and were authorized to use deadly force 
at the time they shot Mr. Brooks. Mm -hmm. And in that analysis, these guys leaned on some 11th Circuit authority, which normally applies to civil cases, qualified immunity decisions. So it's the type of decision ultimately that would normally be left up to a jury. But obviously, in this case, you've got several prosecutors now reviewing this to prevent these officers from being charged and the case never reaching a jury. And Paige, we know you, you have to go in a second, but I want to get your thoughts on this because Pete Scandalak has brought in Danny Porter. You and I are both familiar with him, but he also talked about we hired experts for video analysis, experts for human reaction time, experts to break down the video, and he requested all their findings be in, in writing. You can't deny that this was an exhaustive and and very detailed investigation but even through all of that you're saying that there are some issues there's some optics involved here that you as, as a defense attorney as a legal expert here you have some issues with well absolutely Rosen yes look I, I applaud the transparency here I think it's great that the people will get to see what sort of analysis was applied to the case what did the experts determine but look in 99.9% of cases where there's a violent crime, if the police find probable cause, that person's being charged and it's going to a jury. Mm -hmm. So all of this analysis, all of this time, all of this expense was applied before uh, the decision to make a formal charge and to send the case to a jury. So do we treat police officers differently? Well, clearly we do in the civil context, but you would hope not in the criminal context, but I think this proves differently. And Paige, finally, before we let you go, Danny Porter talking about and Pete Scandalax is talking about, we looked at all uses of force. What we wanted to focus on was there a use of deadly force, citing that a taser is a deadly weapon. Yes, and Rose, they're right about that. Under Georgia law, a taser can be a deadly weapon. So can a rock. Uh, so can a stick. It depends on how they're being used at the time. And that's what's critical here. Was Mr. Brooks in a position to use his taser in a way that would have killed one of the officers? And I think from what we actually saw in the video, that was not possible. These officers at that moment in time were not in danger of being killed by Mr. Brooks. So I disagree with um, Mr. Scandalakis, Mr. Porter. I respect them. They've been around a long time. Obviously, they're looking at this from a different perspective. This case should have gone to a jury. WABE legal analyst Paige Pate and criminal defense attorney, as always, Paige, we appreciate your analysis. There will be more with Paige Pate tomorrow. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.